This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Healthy Versus Toxic, the podcast where licensed mental health professionals explore what makes a relationship healthy or unhealthy or even abusive, all from a scientifically informed perspective. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks, is borderline abuse real? So when I use this term, borderline abuse, I'm talking about the abuse that somebody with borderline personality traits could engage in against another person. And usually this would be a romantic partner. So the short answer is yes, this happens. But of course, there is a longer answer I'm going to provide as well. In this video, I'll be covering different signs of borderline abuse. and I'm going to tie them to the symptom criteria of the disorder. Now, with this term, borderline abuse, I'm not really a big fan of this term. There's already a stigma around borderline personality disorder, but I use this term because really it's expedient and there is no scientific name for this construct. There's no official name for the abuse that somebody receives from somebody who has borderline personality disorder. Of course, we know it happens, but again, it doesn't have a name that's been agreed upon. Now, I don't like the idea of connecting a mental disorder to the word abuse in general. If we consider other mental disorders like generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, all these could have an individual with that disorder being abusive. But we wouldn't think of those disorders as being related to abuse. So again, it could still happen, but it's not the first thing we would think of. And then we look at other disorders that we think would be not associated hardly at all with abuse, like avoidant personality disorder or obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Yet people with those disorders technically could still be abusive. So I'll use the term borderline abuse as I indicated for expediency, but what I'm really talking about here is abuse by someone who has borderline personality traits regardless of their diagnostic status. So that's kind of a long phrase. So again, I'm going with the short term. Now, no matter how we refer to it, though, it is real. And it's actually somewhat similar to vulnerable narcissistic abuse. So that's interesting, the parallel, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, between these two constructs, because borderline personality disorder, of course, is an official mental disorder in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and vulnerable narcissism is a set of personality traits that can result in somebody being abusive. So I've established that this type of abuse exists. Again, it's real. But why is it important? Just because it happens doesn't automatically mean that it's important or that we should study it. 
Well, what we know here is that people can be abused by all types of people, by individuals who have no diagnosis, and as I mentioned before, by individuals who have mental disorders that may not be strongly related to abuse, and still other disorders that have a stronger relationship to abuse, like narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder. But no matter who's doing the abusing or what their characteristics are, we have an obligation as a mental health treatment community to protect people from abuse. Again, it doesn't matter who the abuser is. Now, with borderline personality disorder, we have this other interesting kind of construct as well, which is we believe that abuse in general causes borderline personality disorder or at least contributes to the development of the disorder. We know that 80% of people with borderline personality disorder, BPD, have a trauma history. And we know that individuals with BPD, when they exhibit these symptoms, can contribute to BPD developing in another person. So borderline can cause borderline, or again, contribute to it developing. Now this is interesting, again, connecting back to vulnerable narcissistic abuse, because we believe the same thing about vulnerable narcissism. Vulnerable narcissism can create more vulnerable narcissism. So borderline and vulnerable narcissism share this as well. Now this idea that people who have BPD were abused, that they've been victims of trauma, is actually really common and supported in the research. When we think of the words borderline and abuse together, that's usually what we think of. We think of somebody with borderline personality disorder being abused by somebody else, being the victim of trauma. Now we know for people who have BPD who are also in romantic relationships, over 70% of that population has experienced physical violence in the last year. So as I talk about borderline abuse, it's just important to keep that perspective. Somebody with borderline personality disorder is likely to be the victim of abuse, regardless of whatever abusive behavior they exhibit toward other people. We know that people with BPD suffer tremendously. They're victims often, and when they abuse people, really we see two victims. As somebody with borderline personality disorder abuses another person, that person with the disorder is suffering, and of course the abuse victim is suffering as well. So this kind of parallels over to narcissism too. This is unlike grandiose narcissistic abuse, where the person with grandiose narcissism typically is not suffering as they're abusing, but again like vulnerable narcissistic abuse. When somebody with vulnerable narcissism is abusing, they are suffering too. And that's really how I conceptualize borderline abuse. So as I talk about this construct and talk about signs of this abuse, kind of things that we see associated with this type of abuse, I'm going to base it on the symptom criteria. So first I'm going to go through the symptom criteria and then show how some of those symptom criteria link to different types of abuse I've seen in my clinical experience and we see in the research literature. So the nine symptoms of borderline personality disorder are frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, an unstable relationship pattern, identity disturbance, impulsivity in at least two areas that could be self-damaging, suicidal behavior, affective instability, so this is like emotional dysregulation, a chronic feeling of emptiness, inappropriate or intense anger or difficulty controlling anger, and the last symptom criterion is paranoid ideation or severe dissociation. So as I go through the symptom criteria and connect them over to examples of abuse, 
you'll see again that some of the symptom criteria are kind of overrepresented in terms of abusive behavior and some aren't represented at all. So taking a look at the examples of abuse here using the symptom criteria, the first examples I'm going to give really come from the first symptom criterion and the last one. So the first is frantic efforts to avoid abandonment and the last is paranoid ideation or severe dissociation, but I'm really here talking more about the paranoid ideation. So with these symptom criteria, the type of abuse we see kind of connected to these symptoms, and I've seen these many times, would be false accusations, so like making a false accusation about romantic partner to the police or to other people, and we see that often this accusation is recanted. And interestingly, a lot of times the accusation is for abuse. So the individual BPD will claim they were abused by the romantic partner, but it turns out they weren't, or at least they recanted. So sometimes they may have been abused, but they still recant that accusation. Another example here from the same category would be stalking. That behavior is fairly common. We see what I call warning competitors. It's really more like threatening competitors. So in a romantic relationship, somebody with BPD may see competitors for their romantic partner and be threatened by them and kind of proactively go and tell them something to kind of ward them off, right? So just engaging in a hostile way, usually verbally, when no real threat has occurred. We also see this desire to gain access to devices, and this can rise to a criminal level, like trying to break into somebody's phone, their laptop, their desktop, reading their mail, trying to intercept other messages, right? This is mostly in an attempt to find out if that person's cheating or is going to leave them or whatever. So again, it's kind of wrapped in with, well, really both the frantic efforts and the paranoia. We also see an attempt to build relationships with other people in order to gain information about the romantic partner. So they might go into the romantic partner's workplace and try to become friends with all the people that they work with and then gather information from them about what the romantic partner is doing. Who are they talking to? Where are they going to lunch each day? Whatever. So this one's not really hostile, but it is kind of paranoid and you could consider it a frantic effort depending on what type of behavior we see here. Now, something else I've seen kind of more recently is individuals with BPD who will plant cameras and audio recording devices. So again, most of the time this would be criminal and it's certainly either way a violation of privacy. So I think with these types of items becoming more affordable and there's just easier access to them, some individuals are buying these items and kind of placing them in strategic areas, again, trying to gather intelligence, trying to gather information about what the romantic partner is doing. And the last example from these two symptoms would be violating a protection from abuse order. So it's called protection from abuse order here in Delaware, PFA. In other states, it's maybe called something different, but it's where the court has said that somebody has to stay away from somebody else. And we see with these two symptoms in particular, people will violate these PFAs fairly regularly, even though, of course, it is illegal to do so. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who've overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is. 
how to heal, how to recover, and how to be brave. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. So the next examples are from the symptom criterion, unstable relationships. Some people look at this symptom criterion and say this isn't really related to borderline abuse, but I think it actually is. This is the idealization devaluation cycle. So when somebody's being idealized, maybe the romantic partner isn't really worried about that. So the person with BPD really expresses a lot of love and affection, and the relationship seems like it has a lot of strength. But in the devaluation cycle, there's a lot of animosity, yelling, screaming, and other behaviors, right? A rejection of that person. I think that really both the idealization and the devaluation are, in a sense, abusive. With the idealization, it really characterizes the relationship incorrectly. So somebody kind of gets false hope going based on that idealization. They make plans. And of course, that idealization is not accurate. It's not an accurate representation of where the relationship is going. And of course, the devaluation, the rejection, and a lot of the kind of hateful statements that are made, certainly I think that rises to the level of emotional abuse. Now, if we look at the third symptom criterion, this one is identity disturbance. I don't really see any connection between this one and borderline abuse. But moving to the fourth and the fifth, we do see more abusive behavior. So the fourth one would be impulsivity, and the fifth one is the suicidal behavior. And what we see here is this is a good example of where the person with BPD is suffering a lot, but they also induce anxiety and worry in other people. So other people will see this impulsive behavior and the suicidal behavior, and they'll expend resources to help that person. And again, have a lot of anxiety, worry, even panic, and change their plans and leave work early and do all kinds of other things to accommodate that person. So it's, in a sense, a form of abuse, but the person with BPD is, of course, suffering a lot more. Now, moving to the sixth and seventh symptom criteria, I don't see these as really connected to borderline abuse at all. This would be the affective instability, although it could be argued this is tied to the anger, but that's a separate symptom criterion, and the chronic feeling of emptiness. So I don't see the affective instability and the feeling of emptiness really connected to abusive behavior. These symptoms certainly cause suffering in the person that has them, but they're not really directly abusive. Now, as I move to the eighth symptom criterion, this is the anger. This will be the last one that I cover because I've already covered paranoid ideation in the first set of examples, along with frantic efforts to avoid abandonment. And I think the anger, and really it's a constant anger we see with this symptom criterion, this is really one of the most notable symptoms in relation to this construct of borderline abuse. The type of anger we typically see with BPD is not instrumental. It's not planned out 
well in advance for some clear purpose. Rather, it's reactive. And we know that this anger is more pronounced in the context of romantic relationships. Making this even worse, the anger is aggravated by some of the other symptoms we see with BPD, including the impulsivity and the paranoid ideation. We see here with this anger that somebody is very hypersensitive to criticism and threats, and of course we believe this is because the individual with BPD looks at the situation, they look at this criticism, and they think that means the romantic partner is going to leave them. And we also see in the research literature that people with BPD have difficulty disengaging from negative facial expressions. So again, if somebody appears to be criticizing them or threatening them, they're going to have difficulty kind of breaking off and going and doing something else. So aggression would be the result more often with somebody with BPD as compared to somebody who does not have it. Now, what we see here in terms of examples, we see threats. These are fairly common. I think one of the things I've noticed about the threats associated with BPD is they tend to be fairly serious threats, not like lighthearted threats. Like one person might threaten to push another person or something. That could still be criminal, of course, but it's not usually considered life-threatening. The threats we see with BPD are often around the theme of death and dying, or more accurately, killing and murder. Right, so there are serious threats, and sometimes, of course, they're accompanied by violence. And that's the next set of examples I'm going to give here, physical violence. And we see this is directed toward the romantic partner, this violence, but it could also be directed to the competitors I mentioned. So if somebody with BPD believes that somebody is competing for their romantic partner, that competitor could be at risk of physical violence as well. So what I typically see when somebody with BPD is violent is that their behavior is really just a direct attack, right? Not something, again, that's premeditated, or at least it's not planned very well. And usually the attacks are not long in duration. They're fairly intense, and they carry a lot of risk, and they can be serious. They can cause death or other serious harm. But usually they are kind of spontaneous, as I mentioned before, reactive. So the physical violence kind of follows the trend for anger in general. And one of the elements I've kind of noticed over the years when treating people with borderline personality disorder is if there's a weapon involved, it's often a weapon of opportunity. So we end up seeing kind of a wide and maybe kind of odd variety of weapon choices when we look at this type of abuse as opposed to other abuse. So a lot of physical violence between intimate partners, of course, involves people using their fists or kicking or hitting people with their elbows or something like that. But in terms of objects being used as weapons, I've seen a lot of examples specifically related to BPD. I've seen bats, including aluminum bats and wooden bats, chairs being used as weapons, end tables. I've seen books being used as weapons, jewelry, like trying to cut somebody with like a ring, pens, pencils. I've seen a wide variety of beverages used, like throwing a can, like a soda can, throwing a water bottle, and also taking a drink and just throwing it on a person, like a glass of water and just throwing the water on a person. I've seen box cutters used in attacks, laptops, keyboards, belts, and purses as well. And with those three items, I've seen those used directly, like just hitting somebody with the keyboard, but also used in an attempt to strangle somebody. I've also seen a variety of kitchen utensils, and I'll kind of wrap up on this one because I have kind of a small story that goes along with the kitchen utensil one. So I've seen forks, spoons, 
knives, all kinds of elements from a kitchen used in kind of spontaneous attacks caused by people, you know, initiated by people with borderline personality disorder. And a few times in my career, I've even seen the utensil be a spork, right? So a spork is a combination of a fork and a spoon. And they're not really common. And the first spork attack I heard about many years ago, and the second one was just a few years ago. And I was in this consultation, so I was helping this agency to kind of address problems with different behaviors, including behaviors we see from personality disorders, but also other behaviors. And we were in this meeting, and they were going through kind of some of these items that had been used in attacks, these different examples of violence that involve weapons or makeshift weapons. And one of the items that was mentioned in that meeting was a spork. And I usually have kind of a serious demeanor, which I think is somewhat obvious from my time here on YouTube. And sometimes, especially in settings where I'm kind of running the show or, or have some sort of position of authority, people don't understand kind of when I'm joking and when I'm not joking. So when the spork attack thing was brought up, I said, you know, our society really needs to try to do something to put an end to these senseless spork attacks. It was an attempt at humor. I didn't really think that we have a spork attack problem in society. So either way, I said it and I went on with the meeting, and I guess that's one of the reasons it was interpreted seriously. So I came back about a month later to the agency as kind of part of the contract I had with them to kind of check up on how things were going with these different initiatives that they were launching and I was helping them with. And as I was coming through the door, there's this list of banned items. You know, they have certain items you're not allowed to take into the agency. And I opened the door and I walked through and I kind of stopped. And I turned around and went back out and read it. And on the, on the list, sporks were on there. They were banned. So you couldn't take all kinds of items, right? Like pepper spray and, of course, firearms and knives. But right on the list, you know, prominently displayed along with those other items was sporks. So I went in and I was talking to one of the people who had been at that meeting. I said, you know, it's pretty funny that you put, you know, sporks on that list and everything. And they looked at me in a completely serious and were like, we didn't think you were joking about that. We thought that was serious. So I said, well, you know, it was, it was a joke. So you can, you can take that off the list. I mean, I really don't think those are too dangerous. But interestingly, I think they did leave them on the list. I don't think they ever made it off the list. So in that particular agency, I guess, I guess people can't take sporks in there. But either way, you know, I've seen a lot of different items used in these kind of spontaneous attacks. And that's what I'm really talking about here. They're weapons of opportunity. Again, not carefully planned, not premeditated. People kind of pick up whatever they can when they're having reactive anger and it pushes them to violence. So we have to watch out not only for sporks, but a number of other items that could be picked up by anybody who's really manifesting reactive anger. It wouldn't just be people, of course, with borderline personality disorder. So that's a list of some of the examples we see with borderline abuse. Of course, there could be other examples. And as I mentioned before, it's important to remember that people with borderline personality disorder are oftentimes victimized, and we have to keep that in mind. We don't want to add to the stigma of the disorder. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The producers for this show are Christopher Brightigan and Madison Linden. The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. For more content, please visit our website at arslonga.media. To leave feedback or suggestions, send an email to info at arslonga.media. 
To find more content from Dr. Grande, including a link to his YouTube channel and his other Ars Longa podcasts, visit our website at arslonga.media. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or mental health advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.